Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. One of the greatest missionaries of all time in the Restoration was this story. It was December 1839. Joseph Smith, Harley Pratt, and a number of others, Sidney Rigdon, had traveled to the east from Commerce, or from Nauvoo, to Washington, D.C. Their purpose in going was to present petitions before the Congress of the United States and the President of the United States asking for redress of grievances. Mind you now, they had been driven out of Illinois or out of Missouri by the extermination and robbed of thousands and tens of thousands of dollars worth of property. And now they sought redress from the federal government. They presented their plea to Congress and Congress sent it off to committee. You know what that means. They addressed the president of the United States, who at that time was Martin Van Buren. And Martin Van Buren famously replied, Gentlemen, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. A statement which has gone down in infamy. Well, while Joseph and the others were waiting to hear back something from Congress, knowing that the president wouldn't help them, They set out, journeyed north, visiting the branches of the church scattered up the eastern seaboard. They stopped sometime after January the 14th, 1840, in Philadelphia. Now, I don't know the details, but arrangements were made for Joseph to preach in front of a large congregation in a large hall, which at that time was a church, not too far from Independence Hall. I've been there. Harley P. Pratt now quotes what happened on the night that they had that fireside, as it were. A very large church was opened for him, Joseph, to preach in, and about 3,000 people assembled to hear him. Brother Rigdon spoke first, Sidney Rigdon, and dwelt on the gospel, illustrating his doctrine by the Bible when he was through. Now, this is the point. Brother Joseph arose like a lion about to roar, and being full of the Holy Ghost, spoke in great power, bearing testimony of the visions he had seen, the visions he had seen, the ministering of angels, which he had enjoyed, and how he had found the plates of the Book of Mormon and translated them by the gift and power of God. He commenced by saying, if nobody else had the courage to testify of so great a message from heaven and of the finding of so glorious a record, he felt to do it in justice to the people and leave the event with God. I love that. The courage, the fortitude, and it takes both, to stand before a crowd and bear witness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, a new age, a new dispensation, a new time. Brother Pratt records what followed. He said, quote, The entire 
congregation were astounded and electrified, as it were, and overwhelmed with the sense of truth and power by which he spoke. Multitudes were baptized in Philadelphia and in the regions round about, while at the same time, branches were springing up in Pennsylvania, in Jersey, and in various directions, end of quote. I cannot tell you how many times I have to keep saying this because I feel it. The Lord lives. He is a living God. He is with us and among us. And the Lord would have us teach according to preach my gospel. He would have us teach the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Bear testimony boldly of the Savior. Bear testimony boldly of Joseph Smith and of the Book of Mormon. The year was 1875. There were two missionaries serving in Liverpool, England. They happened to be walking home one night, I think somewhere along the docks, when they noticed a young boy about eight years of age, standing on a bridge. Thinking it was too late at night for him to be out like this, they offered to walk him home. The offer was accepted by the lad, and the two missionaries walked the boy to his humble home where they met his mother, Susanna. She was a widow with four small children living in the worst poverty. Well, the missionaries, of course, wanted to share a message. Their message was accepted, and the family joined the church. Later that same year, with the help of the Perpetual Emigrating Fund, the family made their way to Utah, where they continued for some time to struggle to survive. One of the missionaries, on the other hand, one of those who had taught and baptized the family, returned home and I presume lost track of the family. And as the story goes, he moved back to the ranch in Montana. As he finished his mission, he was heard to say, brothers and sisters, I think my mission has been a failure. I've labored all my days as a missionary here, and I've only baptized one dirty little Irish kid. Well, the missionary went home established his life, and many, many years passed. Somewhere after the year 1933, the former missionary, now an old man, heard a knock at his door. When he opened it up, there standing on the threshold was a distinguished-looking visitor, a small man, only about five foot five inches tall, but with a commanding voice and presence. The visitor asked if he were Elder So-and-so. The man said he was. The visitor then asked, Do you remember having said that you thought your mission was a failure because you had only baptized one dirty little Irish kid? The man said, Yes. The visitor stuck out his hand and said, I want to shake hands with you. My name is Elder Charles A. Callis of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. I was that dirty little Irish kid. What that missionary could not have known in 1875 was that that 
dirty little Irish kid would one day go on to become a mighty apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he would also become one of the greatest missionaries of the Restoration in the 20th century. As Wilford Woodruff was to the 19th century, Charles A. Callis was to the 20th. He was a phenomenal individual. That story always touches my heart deeply because I cannot tell you how grateful I am now for the missionaries who taught me. Some of them not full-time missionaries, some of them roommates, but for the missionaries who taught me. They changed my life. It would be trite to say they gave me a new life and set me on a course 180 degrees opposite of where I was going. I will be forever and eternally grateful to them, as will be all of those whom you labor to love and to serve and to save, while as a missionary, past, present, and future, we cannot know this point, how grateful they will someday be for your missionary labors. The year was 1961. Art had just submitted his papers to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He received a call for two and a half years in the French East Mission. Not long after this, he was a ward activity where he talked to his former priest corps advisor, Marvin Hoganson. I think that's how you say the name. Marvin told Art that he was sorry he was being called to that mission. Can you imagine? He said it was the same area where he had served his mission 12 years earlier. He said it was an extremely difficult area to serve in, and he felt that his mission was a failure. He doubted that he had made a difference in anyone's life. Can you imagine sending out a missionary with that kind of a farewell? Well, Elder Johansson arrived in France, and his second assignment was the city of Marseille. He and his senior companion tracted 70 hours for three weeks with no success. Feeling a little discouraged, his companion suggested they take a break and go buy a pastry. French pastry, amen. However, Elder Johansson had a strong feeling that they needed to continue tracting on into the next building. Reluctantly, his companion gave up his cream puff and followed his companion into the next building. They went to the next four-story building. It had a courtyard and four apartments on each level. The missionaries went to the top level and knocked on all four doors. No answer. Same thing happened on the third floor. On the third door they knocked, a Swiss-German lady answered the door. She said, quote, Elders, I've been praying for you to come. I want to be baptized. Come in. <laughs> we all pray for just such an experience as that. And then she pulled out a well-used Book of Mormon and a Joseph Smith pamphlet. On the pamphlet, there was an outdated church address and the handwriting said, Elder Marvin Hoganson. It was Art's former priest corps advisor. He had given that pamphlet to her on his mission. At the time he left it, this woman's French was not good enough to understand him well, and his German wasn't good enough to understand her. 
This sister now knew the Book of Mormon well because she'd read it so often. Over the years, she'd met with neighbors, close friends, and family, and read, and they had studied the Book of Mormon together. Elder Johansson Art, our young missionary now, and his companion, taught her all of the missionary lessons, and she and her nine-year-old daughter were baptized ten days later. Elder Johansson received a transfer for the city, received a transfer shortly thereafter. The elders continued to teach her, other children, and several people whom she referred. Shortly after the baptisms, Elder Johansson wrote back to Brother Hoganson to share the news. Before leaving France, two years later, Elder Johansson was able to come back and visit with the French lady, the convert, Swiss German lady, rather. She was now an active member of the church who loved the gospel dearly and had brought 50 more people into the church through baptism. When Elder Johansson arrived back home, he talked to his former priest quorum advisor, Elder Marvin Hoganson, who told him of the joy that he experienced upon receiving the letter and to know that his missionary service in Marseille, France, had made a difference to so many people. You see, as you well know as a missionary, some will sow and others will reap. This next story, I had no idea. I don't even remember which one of you it was. Judy Weber, I think, or Weber that sent me this and put me onto this story. Bless your soul. I had no idea. Remember I told you, well, I'll come to that in a moment. John Alexander Clark was a beloved son of Ezra and Susan Leggett Clark. He was a bright, well-educated, ambitious, adventuresome boy who loved life and loved learning. He was from Farmington, by the way. In 1893, he was teaching school in Minersville, Utah. His sister, Alice, to whom he was particularly close, wrote this. This is in 1893 that Alice wrote this. She said, Into every life comes sunshine and shadows, and a cloud now darkened my sky. John received a letter which ended our close association. It was a call to the Turkish mission. His leaving, she said, caused indescribable loneliness and gloom for me. But when he asked me if I was sorry he was going, I replied with all the cheerfulness possible, No, I'll try not to be, as it is the Father's calling. John was given three months to prepare, and he left in February 1894. He journeyed from the States to Liverpool, England, and was then sent on, via a couple of stops, on to his field of labor. He loved the people where he served. He loved the area, the geography, the climate. He loved the people. He loved the languages. He had an aptitude for the German and Arabic languages that he was required to learn to communicate with the people. In fact, his love for the people was so strong that notwithstanding the warnings, he went among people with a desire to teach them, and because of that, came in contact with black smallpox. On January 30th, 1894, John Alexander Clark became ill. He passed away just after midnight. 
February the 8th, 1895. He was hastily buried in an unmarked grave and most of his belongings were destroyed. His family, understandably, was devastated by the news. His mother, Susan, wrote to those who knew her son, John, in the field and said, quote, Will you please write and tell one all the particulars of his sickness, his death, and his burial, and what his last words? Oh, Sister Hilt, I cannot see why the Lord did not spare his life or send an angel to heal him. He was so good, so noble. Or do you think his task was done here and he was needed on the other side? Did he not express a desire to live? Tell me all you can concerning him. End of quote. His beloved sister that I quoted earlier, Alice, was a student at BYU when she learned that her brother was dead. She mourned for weeks and nearly failed school. One day, she said, I returned home from school in a despondent and listless mood. The following morning, I experienced a very unusual manifestation. John's voice, as plainly as when he was alive, quoted the same words he had just spoken just before he left. You said you were not sorry I was going on a mission. Now why are you? Alice replied, I'll try not to be anymore. His other sister, Annie, described her feelings. She said, It is poor comfort to be told that they have gone to a better world. We need the bright and intelligent ones here. We want their companionship. When out in the backyard with my little children, I pulled my sunbonnet down to hide my face, wet with tears, and it seemed that John would try to comfort me. We must be reconciled to his will. I imagined him saying, and then wondered why his will required such great sacrifice. Of course, John's body could not be brought home. The local Farmington newspaper wrote of this lad, the deceased was an excellent young man, worthy of the high confidence placed in him, and the news of his death while he was yet on the threshold of manhood will be received with universal sadness and regret. The family could not bring his body home. Nor, as far as I can tell from the record, were his parents and most of his family ever able to visit his final resting place. They sent money to have a monument erected in his honor. Such a tragedy, such a loss, some may say, all for no purpose. Or was it? Remember, John was a teacher. He loved learning. He loved books. He loved people. He loved students. His career path was education. Little could his family have known in 1895 that his tragic death would one day help open the way for priceless educational opportunities for thousands of eager young people. For you see, John was serving as a missionary in what would one day become the modern state of Israel. Decades later, when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints needed proof that they had an official presence in the country 
previous to 1948, the graves of John Alexander Clark and Adolf Haig lying at the foot of Mount Carmel near Haifa helped establish that presence and the Jerusalem center was built. We cannot understand the mind and will of God. We have to trust that he knows what he's doing and all will work out for the best in his time. I remember paraphrasing what President Hunter used to say. When you have faith and are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing can ever go permanently wrong. But when you disobey the Lord and rebel against him and his teachings, nothing can ever go permanently right. I love the Lord. I know that he's with us, and I know that this is his work. I am so grateful that kicking and screaming, I got to be a missionary. And I've never quite gotten over the love of preaching the gospel and seeing people change. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I will be back, and I will be talking more about miracles, mercies of the restoration, the powerful things that manifest the hand of the Lord among his people. God bless you and keep you strong, vigorous, and above all things, happy and comforted. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.